Well, good morning, everyone. My name is Mark. I serve as one of the pastors here. And thank you for coming to join us during this Christmas season as we celebrate the first advent of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Advent is simply a word that means coming or arriving. And each December is a church who take time to revisit the stories that surround Jesus' birth. And the danger in doing that is that these stories become so familiar that we might make the mistake of thinking they have nothing new to teach us. Well, I have a confession to make. I made that mistake as I approached this text this week in my studies. I started my sermon prep thinking, yeah, I know this. I've got this. Um, I've read this story of the wise men at least 100 times. You know, I don't know that there's anything I'm going to learn here. Well, I was wrong. And I'm quite excited to share with you what I learned this morning. And if you've ever wondered if God is in control of your situation and your circumstances, if you've ever wondered if God cares about you or has a purpose for your life, my prayer is that you're going to be profoundly encouraged by our study in this text today. You know, our outline is going to be fairly simple. It's going to be one thing to know, one thing to feel, And one thing to do. And since engaging your body is helpful for attentiveness and memory retention, I want you to do that with me, okay? One thing to know, one thing to feel, one thing to do. Okay. So we're going to be engaging head, hands, head, heart, and hands this morning. And if somebody asks you what today's sermon is about, you'll be able to tell them. Here it goes. One thing to know, one thing to feel. One thing to do. All right, let's jump in. Matthew chapter 2, verse 1. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. Now, let's pause right there. From the get-go, I want to clear up a few cultural misconceptions about the wise men. Now, this isn't part of the one thing to know, okay? You're just getting these for free. (laughs) First of all, these wise men didn't show up at the manger scene while Jesus was a newborn baby. The text says that they were from the east. Now, most Bible scholars agree that they were likely Babylonians, Possibly Persians, but most likely Babylonians. In other words, they had to make a long and arduous journey to Jerusalem of at least 700 miles if they were from Babylon, which is modern-day Iraq, or probably over 1,000 miles if they were from Persia or modern-day Iran. It would have taken them at least, at the very least, three months to make the journey itself on foot or camelback, let alone the time it would have taken them to prepare for such a journey. So Jesus was likely out of the nursery and in the pre-KA class by the time they they show up. So so if you have a nativity set at home, okay, and it includes the wise men, and you want it to be biblically accurate, get those guys out of your nativity set, take them with you to your car, start driving east on I-40, okay? If they're 120th scale or about three to four inches tall, you'll need to drive 35 miles. So so go past Hermitage, past Mount Juliet, a little bit past Lebanon, okay? 
Pull your car over, grab the wise men, throw them out into a field, say, hey, good luck, guys, on your journey. Get back in your car and come back to town. Now you're biblically accurate, okay? The second cultural misconception that I'd like to clear up also arises from our nativity sets with a little bit of help from one of our Christmas carols called We Three Kings. In our nativity sets, these guys are usually dressed up as what? Royalty, kings, wearing some sort of crowns on their heads, but these guys weren't kings. The Greek word that's translated wise men for us here in the text is the word magi. You might recognize the root of that as what the word magician in English is, comes from that Greek root, magi, for good reason. These guys were mysterious, dark, pagan dudes that probably looked more sinister than royal. They were fortune tellers, soothsayers, mystics, enchanters, seers, sorcerers, astrologers. Think creepy looking guys with dark eyeliner, okay? They would have been hired by pagan kings in the ancient world to help these kings see into the future, to divine the future and, and tell them what to, what's going on so they could predict what was going to happen. They helped kings interpret dreams. They would read the stars looking for signs. They would take fragments of an animal that they had sacrificed, their bones. They'd scatter these bones on a table and, and look for signs in the fragments, in the pieces. Weird dudes, okay? So in spite of what our Christmas carol says, they weren't kings. They often served in royal courts, yes, as mystic advisors to the king, but we shouldn't picture them as kings. So, if you want to dress up as a wise man for Christmas or a Christmas play, don't dress like this. Dress more like this. <laughs> which still might not be very accurate, but at least it's a little bit closer to the truth, okay? And it's hard for us to appreciate just how culturally shocking it would have been for a whole entourage of these guys to waltz into Jerusalem in the first century. Huge entourage. Wait a minute. I thought there were just three of them. Well, no, that's another cultural misconception. They showed up with three gifts, which is where we get three magi. But it's likely that there were many more of these guys that came into Jerusalem. Because you don't take a journey of this magnitude, this arduous, this dangerous, let alone carrying expensive things, 700 miles with just three people. They would have had servants, herdsmen, cooks, maybe some guards. They would have had tents and supplies and food and pack animals to carry all their stuff. There are probably dozens of people in this entourage with them that turn up in Jerusalem, which is the capital of Israel and the logical place to come looking for a king, a newborn king. And as the shockwave of their presence spreads throughout Jerusalem, it likely reached the palace, Herod's palace, and, and, and Herod might have mistakenly thought, oh, they've come to pay homage to me. But instead, what did the wise men show up asking? Where is he who has been born king of the Jews, for we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. This is going to spell some trouble. We'll get to that later. You know, the Greek word for star here in this verse means celestial object. It's a fairly generic term that can mean a lot of things. Was it a comet? 
Was it a planetary conjunction? A planetary movement within a significant constellation that carried some sort of meaning to them? Was it something totally supernatural instead of something natural? You know, we don't know. <laughs> There's a lot of very interesting speculation about this. And I'm going to avoid going down that rabbit trail this morning and simply focus on what the text tells us. They saw something <laughs> in the sky, okay? And from whatever it was, they worked out that it meant that a newborn king had been born. Jesus had been born in Israel. And of course, they were spot on. But how? Here's the question. How on earth did they figure this out? How did the Magi know what the star meant? That's an amazingly precise conclusion to draw from a cosmically gener generic astro astronomical sign. So how did they connect the dots from whatever they saw in the sky to, this, the, to the very specific conclusion that a king had been born in Israel? A newborn baby Jewish king. The answer to this question is our one thing to know. Remember our outline? One thing to know. God had left them, I believe, a breadcrumb trail of sorts in the Old Testament that I'd like to open our eyes to this morning. And this is what I'm excited to share with you. Did you know that there's a prophecy in the Old Testament about a star? It's in the book of Numbers and comes from the lips of a guy named Balaam. You might know his story. If not, that's okay. But those of you who grew up in Sunday school going to church know him as the guy that talked to what? His donkey, yeah. And um, that guy. <laughs> anyway, Balaam is an ancient pagan seer, a mystic, a diviner of sorts. And interestingly, Jewish tradition holds that he was among the very first of, guess what? The Magi. And the Israelites, or as the Israelites, were entering the promised land, they had to pass through Moab. And, Moab, and the king of Moab, a guy named Balak, is afraid of them, and so he hires this um, pagan prophet, seer, mystic, magi guy named Balaam to put a curse on them. And three times, Balaam tries to, to obey these marching orders. He tries to curse the people of Israel, but what happens? Blessing comes out of his mouth instead. And then Balaam gives this prophecy in Numbers chapter 24, verse 17. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. This is an ancient prophecy about a star in connection with a scepter, which is the symbol of a king. A prophecy given about 1300 BC. And if, if the tradition, Jewish tradition is correct, that Balaam is one of the very first or one of the earliest magi, then it's likely that this prophecy was passed along by oral tradition generation after generation within the magi community. Okay? Got that? That's not all. Earlier this year, we studied the book of Daniel together. Daniel was part of a group of Jewish nobility that was carted off where? to Babylon in 605 BC by King Nebuchadnezzar. And if you remember the story, Daniel interprets a dream for the king that none of his wise men, none of the magi there could interpret. 
And so, Daniel gets promoted. He gets put in charge of a huge swath of the Babylonian government, including who? The wise men, the magi. So the magi of Babylon reported to Daniel. He was their boss. And from Daniel, no doubt, they would have had access possibly to some of the Hebrew scriptures, at least some of the knowledge of the Hebrew scriptures and what it said about the coming Messiah. And not only that, but Daniel himself received a prophecy recorded in Daniel chapter 9 while he's in exile. He receives a prophecy, we call it the, the prophecy of the 70 weeks, which outlines the specific timetable for when the anointed one will appear. 483 years after the decree by the Persian king to rebuild Jerusalem, the Messiah is going to be on the scene. Daniel knew that from that prophecy. Do you think he communicated it to his minions? Most likely he did. And so, here's a very plausible working theory of how these magi knew precisely what this star meant. They knew of Balaam's oracle from their own oral tradition. In Babylon, during the Jewish exile, they learned of the prophecies of the Jewish Messiah from Daniel. And then Daniel gave them the precise timeline to watch for the coming of this anointed one, this king. And so, for all of these years, they've been waiting with anticipation. They've been, been holding on to this information, passed on from generation to generation to generation, waiting for the predicted time to come, waiting for the star to appear, to signify the arrival of the Jewish king, the Messiah, the king of Israel. And then, at about the time Daniel told them, Watch for this. Guess what happens? A star appears. An astrological sign appears. They rightly interpret the sign. They travel to Israel and they become some of the very first people to behold the beloved Son of God who's bringing salvation to the world. Isn't that incredible? So here's the one thing to know. Okay, say this with me. God makes himself knowable and findable to outsiders. God makes himself knowable and findable to outsiders. These dark and mysterious magi are about as far away from the traditional people of God that you can get in that time and age. They're very far removed from the Israelite community. They are very unlikely to become people to, that will become people of faith and worship the Messiah. And yet God makes himself knowable and God makes himself findable to them of all people. He spoke their language as mystics, giving them a prophecy to follow. He spoke their language as astrologers, sovereignly putting a celestial object of some sort in the sky at just the right time for them to interpret and put the pieces together and follow the breadcrumb trail to Jerusalem. And he drew them into the very first community that would worship King Jesus. Isn't that incredible? That's what I learned this week. And in the passage we looked at last week, the angel told Joseph, you shall call his name, what? Jesus. Jesus. For he will save his people from their sins. Jesus is the Greek form of the Hebrew Joshua, Yeshua, the Lord saves. You shall call his name the Lord saves, for he will save his people from their sins. 
which is true. Jesus would save his people from their sins, but that begs a question, doesn't it? Who are his people? Who are his people? Now, from our vantage point in history, it seems rather, rather obvious to us, doesn't it? Jesus came for all people. You know, the Gospel of John tells us, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of what? The world. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. So it seems obvious to us, but when Jesus first showed up, it wasn't quite so obvious to everyone exactly who he came to save. After all, Jesus is the Jewish Messiah. He was the anointed one of Israel. He's a Jewish savior for a Jewish people. And Matthew, our author, has already made it that clear by beginning his gospel with a genealogy, a Jewish genealogy. Matthew ties Jesus' story back to Abraham, the father of Israel. He ties the story to David, the great king of Israel. So indeed, Jesus is the savior and hope of Israel. But he's more than that, my friends. He's the hope of the world. And by including the Magi in his narrative, he's making it abundantly clear to his Jewish audience, remember Matthew is writing to a Jewish audience, he's making it abundantly clear to his audience, hey, God is in the business of including outsiders. And what's interesting here is that if you take a closer look at that genealogy at the beginning of Matthew's gospel, you'll notice something very peculiar. I made mention to this in my, my first sermon in this series. There's the inclusion of four names that generally weren't in patriarchal society genealogies, and that's the name of four women. And they're included not only because they, like Mary, have a little bit of scandal on their lives, they're listed because all of them are Gentiles, all four of them. Outsiders who've been brought into the family of God, included in the family tree of the Messiah himself. Tamar is an Aramean. Rahab, a Canaanite. Ruth, a Moabite. Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. So most likely she was one too. These are all non-Jewish people that Matthew has gone out of his way to show us, hey, these are part of the family of God. God can not only work through scandal and redeem those for his glory, but God is also one who's been incorporating the nations, the Gentiles, non-Jewish people into his redemptive plan all along. Jesus is not only the savior and king of Israel, he's the savior and king of the world. And he makes himself knowable and findable to outsiders. Okay, let's get back to the narrative. The caravan of Magi show up in Jerusalem asking about a newborn king. And then we come to verse three. Dun, dun, dun. When Herod, the king, heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. Why was all Jerusalem troubled? Well, King Herod was the jealous type, okay? And when Herod was troubled, everybody was troubled because he had a reputation. King Herod had killed even his own family members to protect his power, to safeguard his throne. And Herod is determined to get to the bottom of this. What these magi are, talk, magi are talking about, a newborn king? Uh-uh. Verse 4. 
And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them, where is the Christ to be born? And they told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for it is written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who shall shepherd my people. Israel. You know, I wish I had time to dive into this prophecy from Micah chapter 5, verse 2, 700-year-old prophecy about the birth, the location of the birthplace of the Messiah. Go study that on your own. We need to move on. Verse 7, then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star, the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem saying, go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. Now we know from the rest of the story that this is a big fat lie from Herod. He pretends to be curious, but he intends to be murderous. Okay? He has no intentions of worshiping the newborn king. He simply wants the Magi to be this, his scouts and spies so that he can come and eliminate the child before he becomes a threat. Verse 9. And after listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that had been seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, what? They rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. You know, just saying rejoiced exceedingly would be enough. But what does Matthew do? They rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Right here is where you see intense emotion come into the narrative. The Magi rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. That, that's, I love that phrase. It's a little bit repetitive, but I love it. This is like quadruple joy, okay? They're beside themselves with gladness. Why? Because God has not only made himself knowable to them, he's made himself what? Findable. Findable. He's including them. He's leading them right to where they need to be to find Jesus in the small town of Bethlehem, six miles south of Jerusalem. They, hadn't, they had just learned about the prophecy of Micah, the Bethlehem prophecy, and where does the star then point them? To Bethlehem. And they start putting the pieces together. They haven't even seen Jesus yet with their own eyes, but they know they're experiencing the supernatural self-revelation of the divine. And they spontaneously start rejoicing. Okay, time out. Let's pause our narrative for a second. We've covered one thing to know. Where are we now? One thing to feel. One thing to feel. My hope is that along with these magi, you too will feel abundant joy. Why? Because, my friends, not only has God revealed himself to them, He's revealed himself to you. He's revealed himself to me. We're included. He's made himself knowable and findable to us. Think about it. You and I, unless you're Jewish, are outsiders. You and I are even further removed from the traditional people of God than those wise men were. We're further away in time. We're further away in distance. We're further away in culture. We're further away in ethnicity. We're further away in the language that we speak. And yet, God has made himself knowable and findable to us. We haven't seen Jesus with our own eyes. 
yet. (laughs) But the gospel, the good news of Jesus has still come to us. The Holy Spirit moved Matthew along to pin these words that we're studying this morning. They were preserved through the centuries, almost 2,000 years now. They were translated from the original Greek into modern English that we can understand, that we can grasp, so that we too could know and find the Savior of the world, the King whose dominion is over all things. God communicated supernaturally to the Magi through astrology in a language they could understand. And he's also communicating supernaturally to you and to me in a language we can understand. He's made himself knowable and findable to us. We too have received the tidings of great joy, which will be for all peoples. Think about this for a minute. We've been included as outsiders. And also think about this. The same God who spoke through prophecies and sovereignly arranged stars in the sky thousands of years ago to communicate to these magi of Babylon and draw them to himself is the very same God who has sovereignly arranged every single detail of your life. He's arranged your family, your friends, your job, where you live, your schedule, to make himself known to you and also to make himself known through you. Your life might seem like a mess right now, but if you found Jesus in the mess, my friend, you are extremely, abundantly, exceedingly blessed. You've been included in the overarching redemptive plan of God in the world. And nothing, nothing can mess that up. You've been promised eternity with him. Nothing that happens in this broken world can change that. My friends, my prayer is that you too will feel abundantly joyful. That you know God as he's revealed through Jesus and that you are known by God who has sovereignly worked in your life and circumstances to draw you to himself. And if you're here just kicking the tires on faith, wondering, you know, is this Christianity thing thing real? Is it it all it's cracked up to be? I see a lot of Christians, they look like hypocrites. It's true. Don't look at Christians, look at Christ. We're all messed up. We all need a savior. I'm confident that right now, God is speaking to you, saying, I'm knowable, I'm findable, I love you. If you want to talk more about that, we'd love to chat with you after the service. Okay, let's finish the story here. To wrap up, verse 11. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. The Magi didn't just kneel before Jesus as king. No, they fell down before him 
as the divine son of God. They worshiped him. And then they present their gifts to him, three gifts. Gifts fit for a king. Gold, just like now, was highly valuable. It would have been a fortune to Joseph and Mary. It's a royal gift for this blue-collar family. How do we know they're a blue-collar family? How do we know that they were poor? Well, we know they were poor because of the sacrifice they offered when they went to dedicate baby Jesus in the temple later in, or over in Luke chapter 2, Luke's gospel. They offered what? They didn't offer lamb. They offered two turtle doves. We have that. That's why that's in our Christmas songs, in case you wondered. They offered two turtle doves in the temple when they dedicated Jesus at the temple to God. That was the provision made for the poorest of the poor who couldn't afford to sacrifice a lamb. They didn't have two shekels to rub together, okay? So this gold is life-changing for them. The second gift is frankincense, which is an exotic spice from southern Arabia. It was used in perfumes and incense. It was what was burned by the priests in the temple for worship and special occasions. Also very, very valuable. And so we've got gold, we've got frankincense, but wait, there's myrrh. Sorry, I couldn't help it. Um, Myrrh myrrh was a a luxury... I've I've lost half of you now. Um, Myrrh was a luxury cosmetic fragrance used in perfumes, but is also widely used in burial customs for embalming. In the text of John's Gospel, myrrh is what Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus used to embalm the body of Jesus as they're wrapping him in linen cloths for burial right after his crucifixion. Many biblical scholars make the connection here between these three gifts and the role and identity of Jesus. Gold, Jesus comes to be king. Frankincense, Jesus comes to be the priest. Myrrh, Jesus comes to lay his life down as a sacrifice. There might be something to those connections. But the main point here is that these gifts are high-end luxury items fit for a king. They are well beyond the social standing of Joseph and Mary and baby Jesus. In fact, these gifts are probably what Mary and Joseph used to pay for their upcoming flight to Egypt, their journey, long journey, where they had to run away from Herod's Herod's murderous intentions. We're going to look at that briefly next week. Mary and Joseph couldn't have afforded this trip on their own, let alone providing for themselves as refugees in a foreign country in Egypt. It's quite likely that Mary and Joseph sold these things to pay for their trip and their sustenance in Egypt. And right here, we see just another glimpse of God's sovereignty, his sovereign timing, his sovereign provision. God brought these gifts from the Magi at just the right moment of need, a sovereign plan thousands of years in the making. And my friends, the same God that provided for Mary and Joseph and Jesus is the God that is providing for you. He may not keep you from hardship. The Bible never promises that. In fact, it says if you want to follow Jesus, there will be hardship. 
After all, Mary and Joseph had to become refugees with a small child in tow, okay? That's hardship. But God always provides for his people. Be abundantly joyful. Okay, our time is short. So let's land the plane here. What's the one thing to know? God makes himself knowable and findable to outsiders. We've covered the one thing to feel. What is it? Feel abundantly joyful. And that brings us to what? The one thing to do. As the worship team makes their way back to stage, I encourage you, worship King Jesus this Christmas. Worship King Jesus this Christmas. And as the Magi worship Jesus, part of their worship is expressed by giving extravagantly and generously of their resources, gold, frankincense, myrrh. And one of the ways that we too can worship King Jesus in this Advent season, corporately, is through giving generously to our global Christmas offering that Bobby mentioned earlier. This isn't for our church. This is something that we do every year to make Jesus known throughout the world through our local, or not, I'm sorry, through our global partners. What would it look like for us to put less under our tree so that we can give more to make Jesus known around the world, among the nations who he came to save? The gospel that's come to us is always meant to flow through us. And we are blessed to be a blessing. You know, as Bobby mentioned, our goal this year is $60,000. I encourage you to make giving a part of your worship of Jesus this Christmas season. By generously and joyfully participating in this special global ministry offering. So if you haven't done so already, would you make plans to give? Would you make plans to give? You can visit our website, learn about our global partners, what they're doing. And there's links to click um, to take you to our giving page. You have to select global offering or global Christmas from the drop-down menu there. But I encourage you, worship King Jesus this Christmas and do it joyfully and do it generously. One thing to know one thing to feel, one thing to do. Behold the king who has come for all nations, who's made himself knowable and findable to outsiders like us. So rejoice, my friends, and come. Let us adore him together. <laughs>